0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today we'll be talking to Stephen Alvarez about his book, Brokering Torres, Mexican Immigrant Families, Trans-Languaging, Homework Literacies. Stephen, welcome to the show. Hello, Trevor. Thanks for having me. I wonder if we could begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure, Uh, I'm an assistant professor of English at Saint John's University, Queens, New York. Uh, Originally from Arizona, did my undergraduate at University of Arizona, Tucson, and then later on pursued my
0: PhD in English at the City University of New York, the, uh, the Graduate Center, the City University of New York. How did you come to work as an educator, and what do you see as the purpose of schooling?
1: It's a long story. I mean, I guess. Like, probably like most educators would say, it begins uh, being a student and really having that impact of mentorship from, from teachers and other educators, a part of the community outside of school. And uh, later, as I grew older, and I really just had a love for sharing what I learned. Even when I was a you know as a student, I would share what I was learning with my classmates. But and with teachers, I would I would also add. Uh, but I think as I grew older, and especially as I became a teacher, uh, specifically. And my experience in this program called AmeriCorps, I was stationed in uh, Alaska, and I was working in adult education there, and then later on uh, as a graduate student teaching composition. Uh, my love for education really uh, became something that was based on mentorship and really building community and building bonds between members of the community. So I'd say that's the long route, but really, uh, I think there was always just a sense where <clears throat> people near me were my teachers, and it was a way of honoring the people who had taught me to share the knowledge. How did you come to write Brokering Toreas? Well, going back to uh, my, my graduate research at the University of New York, when I first began grad school, or PhD program, uh, I wanted to study 20th century high modernist poetics, particularly experimental writing, uh, works of like Ezra Pound, for example, in the Cantos, and James Joyce, Fitting His Way, to Ulysses. And uh, I, it just happened one day, I was on a subway, taking the train to go teach at Queens College, I East Harlem, uh, I taught the 8 a.m. composition class, so I had to take a, a couple trains and, and a bus. Uh, a gentleman on the train next to me saw me reading uh, a, a book, uh, Gravity's Rainbow, actually, Thomas Pynchon, and asked me if I was a teacher. And I didn't really quite understand what he was getting at. He spoke to me in Spanish, asked me if I was Mexicano. Well, I started speaking to him back in Spanish, and it turned out this gentleman was a, a coordinator for an after-school program uh, at one of the outer boroughs of New York, and he gave me his card. And, I had just come back from AmeriCorps uh, thinking about community service and really questioning what it was to study uh, uh, literature, really. And it turned out that this place where I was volunteering to help out with some of the children with their homework, in many ways the children were mixing languages just like the high modernist poets in really beautiful ways, in in ways I saw as very poetic, and that just became a place where... uh, I was studying the language practices like a literary student, but then I stumbled into an ethnographic project as this became the subject of my research and now the subject of my first book. But really it was by uh, happenstance of me thinking about the community aspects and also the impact my work would have and also really getting to know more about my Mexican culture that led product.
0: I think your book begins with an overview of Mexican migration to New York City at the turn of this last century. Uh, can you share some of that information with our listeners? Absolutely. Well, I mentioned just or hinted, I would say previously, that uh, my background is
1: Mexican-American. I, I grew up in Southeast Arizona near the border. And so moving to New York for graduate research was something slightly different because there were Mexicans here, back in, in great numbers. But the, the population and the demographics were very different from what I had known in the Southwest and also in some of the more traditional receiving states, for example, Texas, New Mexico, California, and most of the West, generally speaking. Uh, In New York, around the mid-90s, there was a boom of Mexican immigration. And this was actually happening throughout the country and other uh, less received immigration sites, for example, in the South, North Carolina, and Georgia, especially. But New York, since about the mid-90s, had a growing Mexican demographic, mostly coming from the states, three states of of Puebla, Oaxaca, and Guerrero in southern Mexico. So some of the folks, in fact, would identify as indigenous Mexican, Uh, sometimes speaking some indigenous languages like Nahuatl or Mixteco, uh, before they even really uh, learned to, well, as they learned Spanish, but also as they learned English uh, at the same time, so becoming really trilingual, especially in the writing. So, uh, really, it was a very different experience for me, and I come to learn more about uh, some of the specific policies post-NAFTA that really shaped, reshaped the Mexican countryside and spurred migration to the United States. Uh, the opening and uh, markets, but also the uh, reconfiguration of tariffs was one way to open borders for goods to cross into Mexico, especially corn, for example, but was uh, the same idea, the idea of securing borders and building walls to prevent labor from moving, specifically Mexican labor. But all the same, Mexican labor found its way to New York and at that that same time was also increasing uh, what can be seen as a New York Mexican
0: identity, which is a new identity uh, for the 21st century. In your book, you follow Manos. Um, Can you explain a little bit about what that organization is?
1: Sure. Um, Well, continuing on the same vein, uh, as the community had aged uh, well into about 20 years, the Mexican community, let's say after mid-90s arrival, uh, different organizations as the community increased were were organized to meet some of the needs. Oftentimes, grassroots organizations, for example, the Mexican-American Network of Students, or Manos. Now, Manos uh, was... Um, met in a church basement as a donated space uh, three times a week with parents and children coming to get help with, well, the children's help with homework, but also other questions revolving around schools, but specifically bilingual support from folks who are bilingual mentors, often uh, Mexican-American college students from other parts of the country who were attending college in New York City. So Manos uh, was a program that really operated on a shoestring budget collected from all the members and the families to provide educational support but outside of a school setting and it's also the kind of uh, I don't know, demonstrative example of communities all over the country grassroots communities that can meet together to uh, uh well to speak back to education in some ways but also
0: speak with education but educational sites outside of schools can you talk about um why this community was built outside of schools um what are these grassroots Organizations able to provide that public schools cannot or do not do?
1: This particular site was really a kind of ethno linguistic community. So, a community of, of folks who spoke the same Spanish, for example, but also came from very similar regions in Mexico, sometimes from the same town, uh, often through uh, folks met, learned about monos through kind of grassroots connection networks of communication. So, from uh, let's say, word of mouth, as it might be put. But all the same, this kind of site was uh, local to the neighborhood. So it meant uh, folks learning to, to come together, but also to build community with one another and build upon their own lived experiences and shared experiences. Uh, it might be argued that this was a site that was, I don't know, self-segregated and uh, immigrant enclave, but really the folks there were all pushed there by a set of circumstances by which their children were all attending the same schools and dealing with similar issues about being Mexican in New York. So it was a place really to speak back to what was going on in schools and sometimes what was not going on in schools, but also a place where bilingualism was something that was celebrated and not uh, positioned in a way that where English might have the ultimate price. Uh, Still, English was something that was valued at Manos, but not to the degree where
0: Spanish was relegated to number two. And so uh, at these meetings, you have mothers, their children, and then um, homework mentors. Can you talk a little bit about what bilingual support services are and the activities that all of these people are engaging in together? Really the primary uh, concern with the program was to help children with their homework. So kids would bring in their homework. And the
1: parents would sit with the mentors while the children had uh, received help with the homework. So also to watch the tutoring session and to see something, of course, that was bilingual and moving between languages in order to oftentimes to finish uh, English language homework. And as this was happening, parents also learned different strategies and ways to help children with homework when they couldn't come to models. So it was a way of really focusing on homework and some of the specifics about homework to help parents learn also how to help with homework and oftentimes it was with the children working with parents and sometimes teaching parents especially with english while they were helping with the homework but there was also other aspects of of monos that involved mentorship that included taking the children out to museums since they were in new york city uh different kind of field trips there was uh, also mentors who would work with other mentors to help them as they were applying for different scholarships and different university opportunities And then, of course, there was the kind of camaraderie that happened with the mother specifically, forming comadres uh, kind of relationships where sometimes childcare was negotiated among friends. Uh, And and the general celebrations of holidays uh, where everybody came together and celebrated, especially during the end of the year when there was accomplishments among members of the community and and monos would recognize students who had received excellent grade or on the honor roll. So, I mean, it was really a kind of space where it was education centered, but it extended out and rippled up to other aspects of the community that also helped them mistake their own identity as Mexicans in New York in this particular neighborhood.
0: And for those parents um, who do not necessarily speak English, um, seeing their children's homework in English, I, I think, creates a, a barrier. I'm wondering, was the idea of homework something that they were culturally familiar with, or was that new for them as well? <laughs>
1: In some ways, I think they were familiar with the homework, uh, partly through their own experiences as students in Mexico. Although, the way homework is understood in the United States, especially with uh, the kind of rote memorization that happened in preparation for some standardized tests, was something completely different. I think there was also uh, a lot of the kind of you might call them ditto worksheets that are just reproduced that was new to them, sort of standardized kind of approaches, but a little bit different in terms of what they asked for, and especially in some of the different approaches to teaching mathematics uh so there was a few things that were new for sure certainly but the the idea that there should always be homework of course was something they understood and in fact they were more concerned when their children didn't have homework than really not being able to help with the homework with getting help with homework the mothers were very resilient finding resources uh whether that's family members older young people who were bilingual and spoke english or sometimes, as one mother a profile in the book, uh, going to be paying twenty-five dollars a week for translation services. I mean, so there was a lot of different ways that the mothers were, were trying to help uh, their children with homework. But once they found community of other mothers who have gone through some of these processes, they were able to uh, form different kinds of
0: knowledge communities, but still also educational in their orientation. And and who made up? Um this group of homework mentors did they have some sort of common commonality it happened in a couple different ways. One, as I mentioned, the gentleman on the subway, uh, one of his common uh, tactics
1: of recruiting mentors was just doing just that asking people if they'd be interested to mentor. And that's how we found me. Uh, but also he, he would use different kind of online platforms to try to recruit people to be mentors, but also mentioning the identity of the community. So for the most part, it was Mexican American folks, young folks, particularly college students who came from out of state, places like California and Texas, uh, who were wanting to be a part of the organization, I think partly to also uh, in some way give back to the community, but specifically the Mexican community in New York City. Likewise, there were a lot of people who were Spanish speakers who were not Mexican, who were part of uh, mentors. Some folks who wanted to practice their Spanish, of course, but also who were uh, local, lived nearby. Uh, Other folks... Had heard about it from friends or other mentors. So, really, it was a, a sort of a wide range of people. Uh, for the most part, though, it was all young people in their 20s or 30s. A lot of young professionals who would sometimes work during uh, nine to five office jobs, but it would
0: come to Monos in the evening hours for a couple hours to help with homework when they could. Are there um, any qualities that you find make someone a strong candidate for mentorship?
1: Uh, to be honest, uh, and what I experienced at Manos was really probably consistency about being regular and, and sort of really maintaining commitment with the community. Uh, making the commitment that would be in terms of being at a place at a specific time and honoring that, but also honoring the differences in communities on their own terms. So really, I think it would be uh, somebody with compassion, but also somebody who's willing to learn from children specifically looking at children and their lived experiences as very important, but also indicative of what uh, are larger issues that affect families uh, of, all, of all ranges, or really families
0: in local contexts. Yeah, I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit more about what those issues are. In the book, you, you talk about the immigrants' bargain. Um, I'm wondering if you can explain that as well as any dilemmas that Spanish-speaking immigrants in the United States face that our listeners who are english-speaking and maybe born in this country would not understand sure
1: well i have to admit the immigrant bargain is a term that was inspired uh, by a sociologist uh, robert smith also from the cuny graduate center baruch college who wrote a very important book called mexican new york and in this book it focuses on the transnational lives of mexican immigrants in new york city and really uh, does a great job of pointing out that the immigrant bargain is really a kind of narrative. I mentioned before about parents who went out of their way, specifically mothers who went out of their way to get their children help with homework, but oftentimes there was narratives of migration that parents would use to sometimes, well, try to motivate their children. Uh, these were oftentimes very personal. In the fact, uh, those stories that we probably hear I mean, for maybe this audience think about those stories of but maybe grandparents who would say walking to school uphill both ways in the snow or something like this mm-hmm. um, but this I, this is a story of the sacrifices that parents make particularly social class of a group of parents make who are immigrants and the kind of suffering that they've had to go through in their life to be able to see their children get hit in which case this, this narrative is a, a family narrative and it starts with parents but it continues with the children and uh, and oftentimes immigrant bargain uh, can be used in a way for parents to try, as I say, to motivate their kids to do better, to, to achieve more educationally. Conversely, it's a dangerous kind of rhetoric because it's a heavy burden for a young person to have to carry, to think about that the uh, the sacrifices of their parents are the way they repay them is through educational achievements. So for children, sometimes there was a kind of anxiety that would emerge. But also, more importantly, I think there was a way that uh, they felt there was a kind of personalized failure if they failed their parents. So the immigrant bargain it really is really something they consider, especially uh, among first-generation immigrant families, I think of, of all backgrounds, and really to understand how the success of the student is oftentimes weighted in family, and the way families think of children's success and or failure. But a larger picture of this is also to really understand some of the power dynamics in families between children and their parents, and of course, with motto, uh, Manos, being cognizant of something like the immigrant bargain is what created a kind of sense of trust between
0: mentors and children and parents. Are there other dilemmas that um, immigrant children in these circumstances face that um, monolinguistic, English-speaking residents of the U.S. may not understand?
1: I think increasingly we're seeing more uh, reports in the media of people being mistreated for speaking other languages languages that are not English in public. Uh, We see a lot of these kind of cell phone videos that capture people being really rude and also dehumanizing immigrants for speaking languages like Spanish in public. Now, of course, that's something that we understand, but also imagine being a child and seeing one's parents mistreated in this way. They may not be outright in the sense that these videos portray, but they might be in the glances (coughs) of, of the way people might look at one's parents when they speak English or quote unquote, broken English in public. It might be in sometimes in cases where uh, children are in parent-teacher conferences and the children act as linguistic mediators or language brokers translating and also advising their parents uh, between languages. It might be in those glances where maybe, for example, the teacher may only be speaking to the child but not making eye contact with the parent during these conferences. Mm -hmm. I think the the way of understanding language power dynamics and all how they operate in conjunction with race gender and also uh, one social class are important to consider but also to really understand how this these practices look uh, for families but also in cases where children become the defenders of their families because they are bilingual and i think that's something important to remember because uh, oftentimes and especially with, with, for example uh, mexican communities in new york some of the lower quote quote unquote lower performances on standardized tests are often credited or miscredited towards family deficiencies. So kind of taking a deficit model and saying there's something the families that are not doing that's producing bad results. And if anything, my research counters that to point out all the things parents are doing in terms of bending over backwards to make sure that their kids do well. So it's sort of return, reversing the narrative, but also honoring the voices of the folks in as a as a great program that shows what the grassroots community
0: could be doing and has been doing. Are there things that uh, people who are concerned by what you just shared, who want to be allies but um, only speak English, can do for these students and their families? I think probably one of the biggest points to be made is really just to honor the lived experience of students,
1: to to learn from them, and really as teachers, as educators, to really position ourselves to think about the communities students bring into classrooms. And I think this is at the university level, this is also at K-12. And I really think students to ask questions about their communities, both good and bad, and pointed questions about their communities, things that they see as good and bad, but really to honor their communities and the wisdom of their communities that students bring to the classrooms. I mean, I think the deficit orientation is always, of course, very, very dangerous, but we can not ask students to think about uh, bringing in their communities and you know, thinking of students as, as already full of knowledge of, of their communities and asking that to be subject for our Courses. And with that, I think, uh, for example, students who are emergent bilingual, as many young folks at Monos, but all students who are bilingual, uh, honoring all their languages they bring to the classrooms are very important. And even for folks who are monolingual, we understand the importance of bilingualism. I think questioning those ideologies that think of bilingualism as, for example, additive, when the language is French or German or sometimes even Mandarin, but sometimes uh, deficit approaches when it might be a language from let's say the African continent, uh, Southern Asia or even Latin America or Spanish indigenous languages. I think all this stuff is, is, is super important for us to consider but also I think more importantly it's how languages and ideologies operate and experiencing that at the local level that students have with their own lived experience and then connecting that to some of the macro pictures of power dynamics that are happening around languages and
0: also other aspects of, of power. Let's go back to the the macro picture. Based on your observations of Manos, what are some policy changes you would like to see to support bilingual literacy and education?
1: I think there's a, I guess the main point I would make is is how community organizations like Manos should be partnered with schools. Uh, Though Manos did exist as an educational space, it didn't have any direct relationship with any schools in the neighborhood, including the schools. Uh, the children attended some of the same schools, in fact, the children attended. That to me was a shame, but it was also indicative that there are these spaces that are, that do exist, but that are sometimes passed under the radar of schools. And I think there's also sometimes a tendency of community organizations who may have feel uh, spurned by schools, or maybe even might even not want a relationship with schools for various reasons. Partly to, to even critique schools outside of schools are important to acknowledge. But I think the the larger picture would be. Course, having more organizations and more relationships with educational spaces that exist outside of the schools, but also being very aware of the danger that uh, having different community organizations take the burden of what schools are not doing is a very difficult task and something that I think is increasingly happening to community organizations, particularly nonprofits and so faith based organizations. Uh, I believe that there is greater strength in acknowledging the benefits and honoring our communities, and also with that. I'd say teachers getting to really know communities and also further than that, uh, t- future teachers and teacher education courses that are grounded in organizing and working together with community organizations. For example, as mentors at Monos or other organizations where they're looking for qualified education uh, driven folks who are able to help become mentors is super important. So, really, I think it's thinking about the partnerships we already form, but also realizing that even in those partnerships, there are certain power dynamics that happen among organizations that work with communities and also the community aspects
0: that schools uh, tend to promote. Well, Stephen, we're almost out of time, so I just wanted to ask you a couple of more questions. First, what are three other books you might recommend to our listeners who've enjoyed this book and enjoyed our conversation today? Specifically, I'm thinking about teachers in our lives who we might know who have that deficit outlook of students who are coming from different cultures. Is there um, a book that you might recommend we share with them to get them to think about that differently?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have three great books that have um, really inspired some of the work that came into this book. And I think also uh, make connections to the field of composition rhetoric and literacy studies, which um, I would also encourage folks to really think about. Uh, as I mentioned before, I started off grad school studying literature And that ability to close read and and also to appreciate multilingualism in certain avant-garde poets was something that paid off in this research at Manos. But I think the human impact of really being an educator is uh, really what I strove for And these three books definitely touch on that. So the first one I'd recommend is a book called Writing on the Move, Migrant Women and the Value of Literacy by Rebecca Lorimer Leonard. This is a fantastic book and also um, Dr. Lorimer Leonard is is one of my favorite scholars in the field doing really important work at thinking about mobility, migration, and multilingualism. Related to this, and I think this book is really well, Brokering Tareas, is a book called Del Otro Lado, Literacy and Migration Across the U.S.-Mexico Border by Susan V. Myers. Uh, Myers also in Literacy Studies, but she really focuses on the educational system in Mexico, uh, K through 12 there and the kind of literacy practices that are happening with homework in those kind of sites. Like I said, pairing with Mexican immigrants in New York City, And this book by Myers, I think our our two books go really well together. And the last one, a really important book that uh, got me to think about some of those macro issues of literacy that I mentioned uh, during the interview, is a book called uh, called Decolonizing Literacy, Mexican Lives in the Era of Global Capitalism. This is by Gregorio Hernandez Zamora. This is a really great book to think at some of the geopolitical aspects of literacy and some of the, uh, well, I guess you would say even the political economy of literacy studies transnationally. So a very important book. It also gives a lot of uh, helpful sociological
0: lenses for understanding uh, literacy across uh, Mexico and the United States. Finally, can you tell us a little bit about your next project and how our listeners can follow your work? Sure. Well, uh, I guess. Next stage is is uh we're actually starting
1: to look at Mexican food and literacy, uh Mexican food ways and literacy. Uh folks, if you're interested, they can check out taco literacy.com. This is a website for a class I teach, I have taught at University of Kentucky, now St. John's University, that focuses on Mexican foodways and literacies. And uh that's been a really fun project. I, I think that the next book I'm working on will be about taco literacy and understanding uh Mexican foodways as a way of understanding and as a lens to Mexican culture migration, bilingualism. So it's kind of doing very similar work that I did at Manos, but telling that story through food. And I should have known, because actually when I was a a researcher at Manos, oftentimes the parents brought me food as a way to say thank you, and to really demonstrate that kind of community of trust. And oftentimes our events were grounded in sharing food. So to me, to be able to think about community through food and also how food... uh, like languages, don't know borders in the same way, or don't know walls, I think is really important and also something
0: I'm excited to, to work further into. I think we all look forward to reading more about that. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much. I appreciate it.